Welcome to the session. Um, I just wanted to sort of give you an overview of what we hope to cover in this session. Um, obviously, we've got a great group of panelists that I'll be introducing shortly. But after uh, much discussion among all of us, we decided there were several topics that we wanted to cover. Um, has the children's programming industry perpetuated unflattering portrayals of women in society? These are not insignificant questions. This is a weighty panel. Is the children's content industry, industry responsible for cementing attitudes towards gender? Can preschool programs actually change cultural attitudes towards views of women in society? And on a positive, positive note, what has our industry done that's positive to influence change so far? So just to briefly introduce our panelists. First of all, we have Lindy Cameron, who is the executive producer of Katie Morag. We have um, Jess Day, who is a campaigner for the parent-led initiative, Let Toys Be Toys, who, is who are advocating uh, gender-neutral designations in the toy store aisles. Neve Sharkey, who is the author-illustrator of I'm a Happy Hugglewug, and that book was turned into Henry Huggle Monster um, under Neve's guidance. She's the executive producer on the show for Disney Junior. Linda Semensky who's the VP of Programming and all things fabulous at PBS um, in the States. And last but not, well, last but not least in person is Brittany Summer Cateson, who is a, a consultant um, and educational consultant and creative consultant in the children's industry and has an extensive background on child development. And via Skype, um, if Skype is working in our favor, um, we're having Scott and Julie Stewart, who are the executive producers and co-creators of Kate and Mim Mim. So there they are. Yay. Hi, Scott and Julie. Um, the first topic we wanted to discuss was the idea that parents are programmers for preschoolers. Obviously, most parents and caregivers are involved. They are moderating what their children see and view. So the question that we would like to present to the panelists is do par parental attitudes influence programming choices? The programming choices can be out there, but the parents are still basically curating what their children see. Um, Brittany, to go to you first, how important are the views of parents in defining um, the gender roles for their children? So they are very important, I would say. Um, so a parent is really a, a child's first um, first introduction to what gender roles are from the color that a parent paints the child's room to the toys that they play with the tv that they let them watch um the the play that they engage in with them they really expose them to gender behaviors first um and the psychologist albert bandura had his cognitive social learning theory in which he states that children really learn their behavior from the environment that's around them um, their environment being teachers parents peers media etc and that they're going to gravitate and they're really going to look towards the models that are most like them. Um, in a lot of cases, those are same-sex models. And so we want to make sure that those models are good for them, that they are accurately representing gender roles. And a lot of the times what we see is that um, parents do have gender role stereotypes. Um, there was research done by Kids Industries last year in their pink and blue study in which they asked um, mothers and fathers of young boys and girls what um, they would be most uncomfortable seeing their child interact with. And for young boys, it was guns, and then after guns came dolls and ballet. 
And for young girls, it was guns and shooting games. And after that, it was rugby. Um, so we just need to be really careful in terms of what we're showing to our children and in terms of how we're giving our children motivation and feedback. Um, there was a really interesting study done by Carol Dweck with um, fifth grade children, fifth grade girls and boys who were um, intellectually along the same ability lines. And she found that based on um, the feedback that they were given in early childhood, they responded to difficulty tasks um, very differently. So she found that young boys, when they were presented with a really difficult task and asked if they want to do a harder task, they were like, oh yeah, let me do a harder task. I got it. I got it. And that was because young boys, when they're young, they don't really Girls develop self-control a lot younger than boys. Boys are a little bit all over the place. So when they're doing something well, a lot of the feedback that they're getting is, you're trying really hard. If you try a little bit harder, you can get it right. That's great effort. Um, whereas for the girls, they develop self-control much younger. They can sit still. And so a lot of the praise that they get is, oh, you're such a good girl. Great job. You're so smart. And so girls tend to think that their abilities are fixed and that they can't change them. And so when they are posed with difficult tasks, they kind of shy away a little bit. Um, so it's really important um, parents, teachers, media, in terms of the feedback that we're giving them, um, that it's positive that we're really encouraging them to try and to kind of expand their view of what gender can be. Thank you. I think that gives some great context. Um, Linda, just sort of expanding on that, what has been your experience as a programmer with parents' choices um, in choosing media for their children? Well, we look at the parents really as um, sort of the, you know, like you said, the first programmers. So, you know, when, when we program in the States to kids between the ages of two and eight. So if you want to reach two and three-year-olds, you can't you can't really promote to those kids. You can't assume they're not turning on the TV. They're not, you know, they're not streaming those shows. Their parents are picking them for them. So we have to talk to the parents first. So in essence, for the youngest audience, we're marketing to the parents. And, you know, we're hoping that, you know, kids will want to watch our shows. But we know that the parents are sort of, you know, the, the gateway to that. And what we find is that parents are more fixed in their opinions of what kids will watch than kids are themselves. And sometimes uh, we do focus groups and we'll do them with kids and parents. And we do them with kids slightly older, maybe, you know, four or five year olds. And, you know, we'll talk to the kids first and they'll say they'll watch something. And then the parent might say something different. They might say, well, you know, it's a girl character. I don't think he'd watch that. And you know they're they're very fixed in their opinions, and uh, I, I think that that um, what you find is really you know at, as of age four kids are making more of their own decisions, but up till that point, you've got the parent to go through, and the parent is is you know sometimes you know very certain about what the child will watch, and uh, you know I, I think that is a, a child's really, it's their first guide to, oh, there are shows I should watch and maybe some shows I, I shouldn't watch. So um, that does set things up even further. Yes. Turning sort of to that parental role some more, Jess, you're obviously a parent and very involved in sort of the gender issues in the toy aisle. What are you doing to sort of help shape parental and kids' attitudes? Well, changing that kind of attitude is very much what our campaign is about. Like Toys Be Toys is a tiny campaign. You know, we, we grew out of a, a initially out of a thread on Mumsnet, and so what we've achieved in terms of changing practice within the toy industry. Um, so, 14 retailers have now changed their practices. They've taken down boys and girls labels within shops, and nine publishers have agreed to take boys and girls labels off books. 
And all that has been achieved because there are a lot of parents who do care about this. And so while our stated objectives are about changing practice within marketing, obviously we have a much wider objective of encouraging parents to think a little bit more broadly about what kind of assumptions they're projecting onto their children. Because, as you say, you know, a three- or four-year-old um, doesn't know that he's not meant to be interested in a girl character. And unfortunately, all too often, parents are making that decision and making that assumption for him. But obviously there is a, a, a growing group of parents who are very aware of these issues and, and um, you know, that, that's a testament to the, the success that we've had. And we want to really get that message across because, of course, um, I personally find it amazing. You know, as parents, we are very willing and obviously to accept that we teach our children. You know, my son learned to um, share his toys or to take turns and I don't believe that that's an expression of an innate ability within him. I helped him <laughs> learn that. So when people say, oh, well, kids aren't paying attention to these labels or, you know, these, these labels, his marketing has no effect on children, I find that incredible because, of course, children are out there looking for guidance about how to be a grown-up, how to be a person in the world. And so, you know, what, what we're representing is the parents who are recognising that what we tell boys and girls about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl is very, very important. And the media that they consume and the toys that they're offered to play with are a very, very important part of that. Um, that's a great point and it talks about how young children are very open and they're very malleable and subject to the influences they see a couple things we'd love to first have Brittany speak just a little bit towards the young brain and how it works so we have some um, physiological biological context and then talk about what opportunities that presents for the storytellers here so sure. So in terms of gender, from the time that a child is around the age of one, they can look at a parent's face and they can recognize um, gender characteristics. From the time that they're two, they're able to self-identify and say, I'm a boy, my brother is a boy, my sister is a girl. Um, and then when they begin to engage in play alone, also with their peers around the ages of three to four, they're really engaging in a lot of gender type play. So boys may be engaging in more rough and tumble play, um, plays with uh, trucks and cars, whereas girls may be engaging in more imaginative play, more nurturing play. Um, they also, at that age, really love to categorize things and gender is a really easy thing for them to categorize so they'll say trucks are for boys and dolls are for girls as they get a little bit older around the ages of four to six we see them creating what we call gender scripts so for instance a child would say if you put on makeup you're a girl and if you lift weights or if you play basketball you're a boy um, and that's just a really easy thing for them to do and um, really without the influence, the positive influences of the environment, like Bandura said, and positive influences that can include media, um, they fall into those general stereotypes, which we really don't want them to do. Um, just talking about the gender roles, um, Henry Huggelmonster does not have human type of characters. Uh, they are, they're critters, for lack of a better, they're yeah, monsters, they're, they're monsters. huggable monsters. Um, so um, what have you found in terms of just gender role identification that working with the non-human characters has created? Well, I suppose it, it always frees you up, like I come from a publishing background, so Henry started as a book mm -hmm. first of all, so I'm a picture book maker as well as a show creator, and I'm always, like in all of my books, and you know, and in the show as well, I want the characters to have a universal appeal. Mm -hmm. Like always in my books, they were the ravenous beast. It could be a girl <laughs> or a boy. I never kind of specify it. The Hugglewugs were the original 
kind of monster family. But then Henry is like, he's your guide to the show. So he's the, the five-year-old, the middle child in a monster family. So he's got a sister and he's got two brothers and he's got siblings. So like what made it freeing is that you don't have kind of stereotypes, I guess. Um, but then it gives you kind of a freedom as well. Um, and I suppose I was telling Julie before as well, mm-hmm. when, I, when I designed the characters and also when I designed the book and the look of them as well, I didn't want them to be girl specific or boy specific because like even myself, I loved The Muppet Show when I was a kid yeah. and I think it really appeals to both. And I hoped that Henry Huggle Monster would be the same. Like it started life actually as the happy Huggle Monsters because it focused just on the family. And throughout the development, Henry came more as the, the stronger character because mm-hmm. because he was in the middle of the family. It, he, it was his voice that was coming out more. Um, but in terms of colours and everything as well, I tried it not to be, you know, I, I, I do it kind of naturally that I didn't want it to be pink. But I also didn't want it to be blue. So the colours that I used were oranges. Like even on the book cover, it's a very strong orange colour. Um, and parents have said to me, like, fathers are happy picking up my book because it's not too girly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't kind of put them off. It's a very graphic design. But I think that's important as well that, you know, the caregivers, the parents, the grandparents, you know, you're you're, you're not kind of saying the books should be girly yeah. or, or boyish as well. signaling it to the yeah. parents or the caregivers either. Um, I think we have Scott and Julie back, I hope. Hi, guys. Are you there now? Yes? Hi, hello. Hi. We are. We are here. Um, so we wanted to um, just ask you, because uh, they created Kate and Mimim as a parental team, um, uh, how did your family experiences inform the series and inform the character? And I think what we wanted to do was show a brief clip from the show first to sort of give people context in case they don't know it. So can we get the clip rolling and then get back to Scott and Julie? No problem is too big for a big thinker and her big buddy. It's nice to have help. Don't give up, Tiny. You can do anything if you try. So if you guys wouldn't mind just sharing with our audience here a little bit about where Kate came from and how you developed her character attributes. Absolutely. So um, our family very much influenced Kate and Kate and Minden because Kate comes from a real girl. We have three children and our youngest name is Kate. And when she was a baby, she was about two years old when, well, actually even earlier than that, it became very evident that she was obsessed with this little plush bunny that she had, who she named Minden. And um, at the same time, our boys had really developed their imaginations. They're two and three years older than she is. And we watched them dive deep into their imaginary world. Um, and when we looked back at Kate, we said, wow, you know what? She really thinks Minden is alive. How about if we put the two of these concepts together and create a show about it. And that's where the inspiration came for Kate and Mimim. We've been very careful. We don't have gender roles in our family as parents, um, and neither do we with the three children. So when we set out to create Kate as a character, we really looked to all three of our children, and we didn't try to delineate as a boy qualities as a girl quality. We created a, a imagination and um, really deeply empathetic uh, um, with the way that we encourage our children to treat people around them. So as we did this, we began to realize what a very large social responsibility we have as content creators. And that became um, a pillar 
with which we used as we created the show. Great, thank you. Um, just to kind of go back to another topic that, that Neve started touching on was sort of the, um, the, the marketing and the color choices. It's always a sensitive issue to bring up merchandising in conjunction with children's programming, but it's sort of a necessary part of the process. If, if uh, creators of shows and financiers of shows don't have ancillary revenues, they can't sustain uh, the revenue streams they need to make, keep making quality content. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, more about the interplay between the, the, the programming and the toy industry. And um, Neve, could you just expand maybe a little bit on what your experiences yeah, have been with Henry? Yeah, I could tell you about Henry? my experience. Um, with Henry, we didn't kind of meet with any toy companies through the development, or even for most of the, the making of the first series. It was towards the end of the first series that we first met with toy companies, which was nice because we didn't feel like, you know, we were we were kind of doing a TV tie-in yeah. with toys. We the, we kind of teamed up with uh, Disney, teamed up with a a small kind of UK company first of all, Golden Bear, and they came over to Ireland. I I work in Brown Bag Films, and they really brainstormed with our team in Ireland um, about what the show was. I could see, you know, just from Disney that they mm -hmm. saw that the show was gender neutral as well because, you know, although we had had Henry, there was a really strong group of friends and and the the sister Summer as well was a real kind of strong personality, and even when when I just worked with the toy company, we kind of said what would be a cool toy, you know, for, mm -hmm. l like what the guys were saying. I've got kids myself. I went home and I brainstormed with my own kids. What would you like to play with? You know, if, mm -hmm. if you had a Henry toy. And the first thing that they said was like a house. So it's like pretend play as well. So it's a house. It's a yellow house. Like it's not, you know, either girl or boy house. Um, and it was kind of interesting, even when we developed the show as well with the packaging. Um, like it, because they changed the name of the show kind of through the development was the Happy Huggle Monsters fo focusing mm -hmm. on the family to Henry Huggle Monster. That was definitely a more boy appeal and they Disney would have looked at the packaging to make it more boy friendly because I think with girls a lot of the times they're happy to buy blue mm -hmm. or you know th to have different colors but Disney kind of did more blue and or was a blue and green packaging mm -hmm. for the toys turning to to just to sort of follow up on that what kind of direct feedback have you had from the people at the toy stores is there a resistance to girl characters or to um, you know, putting them into the toy, toy aisle. What is their perception of well, how that works from TV to the toy aisle? We've, we've had really interesting feedback from parents about what they see. And obviously one of the things I'm very excited about being here is the opportunity to connect with people who are involved in the creative process about their own experiences. So please come and talk to me. Um, but what we find frustrating is that very often, you know, a creator is clearly, as, as Neva said, you know, you want your creative product to reach the widest possible audience, which is one of the reasons we've had lots and lots of support from authors. You know, many authors are really uncomfortable and unhappy about their books being packaged and marketed in a way that puts off half their potential audience. And the idea that there are boy interest and girl interest and boy colours and girl colours, these are a marketing construct. And we've all got very used to it because it's become normality. You know, that it had got to the stage where, you know, when I, in Christmas 2012, went into Next and found all the toys labelled boy stuff on the packaging, 
and everything pink behind me was all toiletries. So that's what the girls were supposed to have for Christmas. No toys for you girls. Go have a wash. Um, (laughs) But that had got through layers and layers and layers of marketing planning and merchandising and what's going to go on the shelves and what are people going to want to buy. And nobody ever stopped and went, hang on, there's something wrong here. This is not right. Because this marketing construct has become so embedded, we see it as normal. In the same way that somehow we've ended up with a situation that we see it as normal to see three times as many male characters on the television as female characters. So my own kind of road to Damascus moment where I got involved in this campaign was when I read um, uh, Dear Zoo, which I'm sure everybody's come across. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote to the zoo to send me a pet. Do you know what? The, the zoo sends eight different male pets. Every single animal is male. And what shocked me was not that every single animal was male, because, you know, if you look around picture books and storybooks, you'll find that's actually pretty normal. Um, somebody sent us a, a, a figure for the number of female, of female animals in Octonaut. It's very low. There's always a bit of a breeding problem in the ocean. Um, <laughs> but, the, but what shocked me was the fact that I had not noticed. I must have read that book 200 times before I noticed that there were no female animals in the zoo. And we've all got very used to this. But the toy companies do this, not because that's what children want or even what parents want, though parents have become quite used to it. They do it because they can sell more stuff. You know, toy companies aren't... Obviously, they, people will say to us, well, you know, toy companies are only doing what the consumer wants. It's not quite that simple. Toy companies are doing what they can sell. That makes them the most money. And they can make more money by convincing us all that boys and girls can't same, tell, share the same toys, they can't share the same clothes, they can't ride the same bike because this one is pink and this one is blue. So it, it's, it's all about selling us more stuff, basically. And there's another layer to that, which is that if girls start taking an interest in the boys' stuff, well, you know, they're moving out of their safe little segment. You know, the, the toy companies are then having to compete with one another, actually, for the same for the same audience, it's much better for them to have the princess market stitched up and safely sell the pink stuff to the girls, which is why you will see girl characters going missing. And it's not simply that they won't sell, because, I mean, that's highly circular, you can't buy what's not there. But, for example, when the the Star Wars relaunch came out, they did a 12-character set of uh, figurines, 12 of them, two Luke Skywalkers, no Leia. Clearly, nobody would not have bought that set because it had a female character in it, would they? That's because they don't want girls to buy these products because they want to keep these markets very separated. So similarly, Big Hero 6, guess what? The T-shirts only have four heroes on them. Guess who went missing? Avengers Assemble, somebody didn't turn up. Guess who that was? And this is actually very, very insidious. So even when you have strong, you know, a minority of strong and interesting female characters, they get wiped out, they get erased when you get to the merchandising shelves. And actually, I think this is very sinister. It says something disturbing to our girls, that actually, you know, even if you've got an interesting character, sorry, Mush, you're not allowed to, you can't have a Black Widow t-shirt, she's not there. Um, but what is it also saying to our boys? You know, are we really saying to boys that somehow your masculinity is going to be compromised if you wear a Big Hero 6 t-shirt with a female hero, you know, somewhere in the background on it? I think it's actually very worrying. And it's not about what children want, it's not about what parents want, it's about what people think they can sell. And I think we have to push back very hard on this. Good segue into how the pushback is happening. Um, You know, historically in the preschool space, it has been very male-dominated. A lot of it was based on source material. You have Curious George, you have Thomas the Tank Engine, you have other source material. That coming from the publishing world was boy skewing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the steps that have been changed or taken to try and change that paradigm. Linda, can you talk a little bit about the competitive landscape in the U.S. and how that market is working? 
and what you have done at PBS to make sure that there are more girls on screen? Sure. At PBS, you know, the, the goal has always been to make gender-neutral shows, as much as shows can be gender-neutral, to make them neutral so that, you know, there are there are, you know, boy lead characters and girl lead characters and the numbers are equal and, you know, people feel comfortable with that. And a lot of our shows have animals as characters, so, uh, you know, sometimes that takes a little bit of the pressure off. But we've really worked hard at, at having sort of uh, equal numbers where we can. And of, of course, you know, that's a process. You, you can't get that overnight, but, you know, you swap out one show, you add one in with a female character. But then there's this other thing that happens, and that's where the conundrum kicks in. So it has a lot to do with programming. So say you make a show, and, you know, it, it's, it's got a, a girl lead character, but say that show happens to be on, you know, it's counter-programmed against a show that's maybe more popular with the female character, like, say, Sophia on Disney Channel. So if all the girls are watching Sophia, and your show is not as popular as Sophia, you might say, okay, well, you know, our girl show isn't doing as well as their girl show. So you might move it to another time, and maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But what started to happen at PBS was, despite all of the gender-neutral shows, we started noticing we were skewing uh, sort of 45%, 55% girl-boy, so just a little bit boy, even with, with shows with girl lead characters. And what we realized was Disney was skewing very girl in a lot of cases. So no matter what we did, we skewed boy, they skewed girl. And, uh, you know, that sort of gets you into a situation where you start saying, okay, do we do more girl shows and fight it? Do we do, we do shows that really skew girl and give up on the gender neutral just to get the girls back? Do we give up and just skew boy and say, well, okay, if they've got the girls, we'll take the boys, we're good. Uh, <laughs> Anyone have any ideas? <laughs> I mean, this is this is tough. This is a, a really tough one because you know you want to do the shows with the girl characters and you want them to do well, and you know, but you have competition that you've got to fight with. And then, you know, there's there's sort of a, a new situation, which is that Nickelodeon, Nick Jr. To me, I don't work there, but it, you know, they appear to be making more toy-based shows, which seem to be skewing much more girl or much more boy. So, you know, and I keep thinking as a programmer, you know, God, how are they going to run those? Are they going to run the girl shows together, then the boy shows? So, you know, I don't, even, I don't even know how that's going to work. But, you know, that does to me represent kind of a, a shift in the marketplace where you're seeing these unexpected things happen that, you know, like in my mind, it's like we should all be gender neutral. We should all be trying to make shows for everyone. And as a broadcaster, I'm thinking, well, you want the largest audience possible. You do everything you can to get the largest audience possible. So, you know, we keep going back to, well, it's our our role as the public broadcaster to be as gender neutral as possible, to be as diverse as possible, and to be for everybody. But, you know, our audience isn't reading our mission statement and, you know, they're just doing <laughs> what they want. And so so it's it's been really challenging lately. And and, you know, this is just in the preschool arena, which traditionally has been as gender neutral as you could get. So, uh, so it, it is an interesting environment at the moment. Um, just to throw to Lindy briefly, um, how did Katie Morag come to be? Because I know there was actually a change in the mandate from the, C the BBC for programming. 
with a request for a proposal? Yeah, well, actually, we weren't aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we just, uh, we had had the the rights to the books for a while, um, and Mary Hedwig's Katie Morag books, and um, we inherited already a world that was populated with uh, nurturing men and strong women. And, uh, for example, Mrs. McCall, the mother, she's a working mother. She um, she's quite frazzled because she's got, you know, she's got like all of us that working parents have, you know, a lot on her plate. The father, Mr. McCall, he's also, he runs the shop, she runs the post office. He wears um, an apron with a nappy pin in his apron and he does a lot of the nurturing, he has a lot of the nurturing roles. Um, and she has this grandmother, Granny Island, who's uh, a tractor driving, kind of really, really strong. She's strongest, sort of, kind of like... Um, probably characters. She's a character that a lot of people relate to most in terms of the adults, and she's very, very close to her granddaughter. And then she's got this other grandmother who's the exact opposite, who's the, you know, who's a, a very kind of like feminine, if you like, very um, frou frou, Mary would say, frou frou woman. So we had that, <laughs> we had this, this world already, and we just had to be true to that world. Um, and some, because we had a team script, we had a team writing sessions to write all the scripts a lot of them were based on the books uh, but we but there weren't enough books for all the series all the episodes that we had so we had to write episodes so we had this big team writing session Mary was there most of them um, the writers training writers director uh, um, producers were all in a room story story writing so all, all the stories were fleshed out there um, and um, then the writers would come back individual writers would come back with the episodes so I would read the first drafts and in the um, in in the voiceovers, they would ha uh, we could we could put in um, <coughs> things like, well, we got Katie Moore to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be a journalist when I grow up, or I'm going to be a helicopter pilot when I grow up. So we could be quite that wasn't these things weren't in the book, so we could put those in. And we even invented an episode where there was a, a boy who had to jump, hop on one leg, and say um, at the end of it, pull out. Um, I have uh, girls are just as good as boys because this is the whole conceit was that he, you know, he'd actually said that girls couldn't do this thing. So that was the episode. But it kind of backfired on me because a little bit because as I was reading the first drafts, uh, Sergio, one of the writers, came in and, he, and there was an episode with a vet in and he put a vet, he blah blah blah. So I was like, oh, we'll change that to she, she vet, blah, fine. And um, eventually that went through all the drafts until the last draft and we gave that to Mary to go over. And she, she got back to me with her nose and she was like, oh, by the way, Vet and Tyree is a man, so it would be really funny for the people on Col, which Col is the island where it's based on, if that was to be a weird wee joke if, if you put he. So I was like, oh, that's me, you know, with my, my jiggery-pokery of trying to you know, subliminally put in that message. So, yeah, so sometimes it worked. <laughs> um, we have a, a little bit of research to slide to kind of summarize where it's at in terms of the, the programming statistics, which are from the BBC. So, um, as you can see, Henry, pretty much split. Peppa, pretty much split. Kate and Mimbim, pretty much split. And Katie Morag, 60-40, which is still considered, you know, pretty much an even split in terms of the programming for kids. So, our shows are doing well. Um, to just kind of, uh, you know, continue on here, girl characters and the importance of the girl characters for the boys um, in the world. Um, Lindy, just to kind of go back with your um, gender changing of characters, um, have you done anything creatively to try to get more boy roles and boy models into the show? Because Katie obviously 
is a very strong yeah. lead character. She's very strong, and I, I don't I don't think we've done very much consciously to do that, but but we just want. To, I mean, she's very thing about it, she's brave, she's problem solving, she's quite competitive, she's a bit naughty, you know, in naughty, I don't like that word really, but she, you know, she, she, she does kind of things that uh, upset her parents sometimes. So, you know, she, she's, she's very like to honest. say she questions authority. She questions authority, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and she sorts things out and she's very emotionally out there and she's self-reflective and, you know, so that if she has sort of problems then she you know she she tells us about them and she tells people and she's also emotionally aware of other people's feelings so I think I think uh, I think we like uh, you know there's obviously tractors and the uh, animals and things that boys like um, but and I think they like Glenny Island but and um, I think it has a good sense of its own place and then maybe that's what they like um, I am going to um, go straight to Jess to talk for a bit just about how important it is for boys to see strong girl characters and, um, you know, what that means for boys and their gender role development as well. I think it's a very interesting point, this, this area about kind of, you know, do we need more boys in the girl-led shows to get them in and what, what will boys, what, what will bring boys in? We we went to an we were on the panel of a children's media foundation uh, event with uh, Kate Bambo from CBBS last year, who was presenting figures about how girl-led shows on I mean it, it's uh, there were slightly different shows but how girl-led shows on CBBS had a pretty much 50-50 gender split, and the the states the stats they've shared with us uh, subsequently have, have showed basically that there's very little gender skew on girl-led boy-led shows actually, mm-hmm. and so to some extent we're we're kind of looking in the wrong place here you know we're we're all concerned about whether there's enough girl characters for the girls. Well, actually, what about the girl characters for the boys? My son is going to grow up in a world where he's going to have to interact with women in the workplace, in, in, you know, in the rest of his life. Um, and so it's just as important for him to empathise with and go through. You know, it's the point of stories, of books, of media, you know, it's to walk in someone else's shoes. It's to understand the perspective of someone else. And I find it deeply troubling this idea that actually we we don't we can't possibly expect boys to sympathise with girls. But we have no problem assuming that girls will empathise with boys. And if that's the case, it's because we train our children to expect that. You know, that, that girls are assumed to be interested in boys' experiences. But actually, the implication of saying that well, we can't expect boys to associate or, or be interested in girls is, is highly hierarchical. You know, essentially saying, boys, don't demean yourself by thinking about what it might be like to be female. It's beneath your notice. And that's a very troubling message to be, to be giving children. And so this whole thing about this received wisdom about will boys empathise with girls, I think there's two big issues with it. One is, I just don't think it's true. I certainly don't see that in my own son. Um, it's not evidenced by the CBB's data. I know lots of boys who enjoy reading boy- books about girls. It becomes true because we keep telling boys that they're not meant to read books about girls. And books about girls are packaged in pink and marketed in a way that basically says to boys, you know, really, you are not welcome here. And that's very worrying because a lot of those narratives are, you know, what if, where's the Jacqueline Wilson for a boy who is going through the kind of issues that Jacqueline Wilson books are dealing with. You know, if your parents are divorcing, where are the books with boy characters who are going through those emotional, those emotional experiences? And what we're kind of implying is the boys don't have an emotional life, really. And, you know, they do, and we need them to, to feel that that's OK for them to relate to women and to, to have friends and to have an emotional experience. So I don't think it's true that boys, that boys don't, don't relate to it. We keep asking for evidence of this, 
And actually, nobody's been able to come up with any. Um, John Doherty, the, who's currently the chair of the Children's Writers and Illustrators Group of the Society of Authors, has written a very good blog post about his own experience trying to find anybody who will do anything more than kind of make sweeping statements of assumptions about this. You know, nobody can actually come up with any evidence. Yeah. It's just received wisdom. So it's, I don't think it's true. And if it's true, we need to challenge it. You know, it's not okay for boys to go, no, sorry, I am not going to relate to 50% of the world's population because, you know, they're beneath me. <laughs> it's not all right. No, definitely not. Well, that's what I think it, you know, it is, I've just heard anecdotes of parents, like, turning off the TV yeah. because, like, uh, you know, yeah. say Doc McStuffins because mm. she's a girl character yeah. saying it's, you know... We, we teach our boys this. Which is, just seems mm. insane to me, you know, because, like, really any child is just attracted to the story and, yeah. you know, what's going on in the story. And they hear this over and over again. So I took my son to the Hay Festival and there was a craft tent and we went in and the woman behind the desk was like, you know, explain the craft activities. And I said, what's the theme today? They had a different theme every day. She said, sorry, it's Alice. I know boys don't really like that, do they? My six-year-old son is standing there who's enjoyed Alice in Wonderland very much, obviously thinking, oh, yeah. I'm not supposed to like Alice in Wonderland then, am I? You know, and this is the kind of message they get day after day after day, and it's something they learn. So on the messaging, back to Linda, you have a slate of shows with a lot of strong female characters at the moment. Uh, you've had Word Girl, you've had Pig Plus Cat, you have The Odd Squad. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how Agent Olive came to be? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I want to tell a Powerpuff Girls story Absolutely. first. Absolutely. You know, I, I love I come, Powerpuff Girls came stories. from a Cartoon Network yeah. before I was at PBS, and this is a story that's very relevant to this group, I think. So uh, we were in a focus group. We were with boys, uh, seven, eight, nine, roughly. And at the beginning of the focus group, we were testing some pilots, and uh, we were just asking them what shows they watched. And there were eight of them. We said, how many of you watch Powerpuff Girls? One boy raised his hand. We thought, hmm. And... Uh, at the end of the groups, so roughly an hour and a half later, uh, we said we had some more questions for them. They should put their heads down. And so they put their heads down. They couldn't see each other. How many of you watch this show? How many of you watch that show? How many of you watch Powerpuff Girls? Seven out of the eight raised their hand. So, wow. so you know, end of story in a way. You know, it's so much of this is perception. They're watching the shows. They may just not be talking about them. So that was a very interesting finding for me. I, I felt that day that if, um, you know, if, if Cartoon Network had seen into the future, we might or might not have made Powerpuff. I've always wondered about that. Um, they're making it again, so clearly <laughs> it wasn't a big problem, but it was a challenging show because boys watched it, girls purchased the merchandise. Because so. they were afraid to buy it. I think yeah. so. Well, they weren't going to play with it. it the same way. So that was interesting, but that did feed into a lot of my knowledge when I went to PBS about, um, about you know, boys and, and that they will watch these things, and maybe they won't talk about it, but they will watch these kinds of shows. So as we were, um, we were developing some math shows, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do was change attitudes about math. You know, most people hate math. Most parents hate math. Uh, I thought math needed a better PR person, and I, I thought, well, you know, if we get a few people to kind of talk up math and how helpful it is, maybe we can help. So um, one of the things we did, though, was we said, uh, you know, we started asking people for math shows, and we requested um, female leads. And uh, we said, you know, special attention to any female leads in these pitches and any diverse characters. So out of that, we got, um, for our younger audience, Peg Plus Cat, which is a math and problem solving show. For our older audience, we got 
Odd Squad, which is the show we selected for our five to eight audience. And um, really, it was a matter of just requesting female characters. But the twist was, if you make the show funny, anyone will watch it. It just has to be a good show with good characters. And so the creators, um, Tim McEwen and Adam Peltzman, they just developed a duo, Agent Otto, Agent Olive. Olive's a great character. And, uh, you know, she sort of plays the straight character to Otto's sort of goofy character. And that's just in this particular pairing up. But when it comes to problem solving, they each have their part in the problem solving. And there, there's no point where we position girls as having trouble with math, not liking math, boys liking math more, boys being better at it. There's no point where we get to that. It's always, they just do what they need to do to tell the story, and they make it funny. And so it's interesting, we're working on season two now of Odd Squad, and um, it's two new agents. And um, they, the girl in this pairing is funnier. She's the funnier character. The um, the guy character in it, he's got something going on that'll be revealed as the season goes along. <laughs> but the girl is definitely the funnier one of the two. And she's, uh, you know... It, it, it's just, it's a different kind of pairing, but again, a strong female character who has no problem uh, other than, you know, whatever problem they might be having in the show. She's not afraid of math. She's not intimidated. And so, um, so that's been, uh, you know, interesting for us to figure out, okay, how do you do that? But it's easy. It's really, it's not hard at all. And boys watch it. Boys like the character. So it hasn't really been an issue because we haven't let it be an issue. Right. I'm going to ask uh, the, the one question of each of the panelists and then open it up for some Q&A before we run out of time. Lindy, if you could uh, change the world, what's the one thing you would do with preschool shows? Oh, uh, mm -hmm. I think that, um, well, I think that we just need to, to have diversity within gender. So like have nurturing boys, have feisty young girls, have girls who like playing with you know, dolls, mm -hmm. and have boys who are, you know, testosterone-fueled, because then otherwise, and just m make real characters and a s good sense of story, and then, the, you know, and, and if you build real characters, you know, we are all diverse, and we all like, you know, different things, and we're all on, you know, so that's all. <laughs> Jess? I think a very important point about more diverse boys, you know, and but I think we, we talk a lot about the need for strong female characters. What we really need is more female characters and then they don't all have to be strong you know we're not examining each one for how they represent the entire mm. gender at that point they can <laughs> they can be more interesting they can be more diverse so you know if the world is 50 percent female why would our media be so dramatically different and if we put it i think the the gina davis institute has some interesting interesting statistics on this it's about you know not just the strong characters the female characters more females in the background you know more female fish <laughs> yeah female writers <laughs> yeah that too yeah, I think, like, you know, it is funny because it's not a black and white area. It's really, I, like, I've learned even loads from is it driven by the toy companies. Like, I know even with publishing, I read statistics because it's very similar. Like, the Caldecott Medal in the States, there was only one female lead since 1938 mm -hmm. in a picture book. So it's like, it's right across the board. It's not just preschool TV, it's everything. So, like, I suppose for me as an author and illustrator and also as a show creator, it's up to the creators, the content makers, to kind of drive that, to push it forward, to go, yes, we want to kind of, you know, have more diverse characters. Like, I think we need strong female leads, but we also just need great stories as well. And I just think it is out in the agenda. Obviously, the, 
you know, the, the TV makers as well are discussing it and it's in the wider things. There's your revolution going on in the toy aisles. Mm -hmm. But if we're all active about it, really in one generation, you could totally turn it around. Linda? So more female creators of shows, uh, more female directors, and uh, overall just more diversity amongst the people who create the shows. Great. Brittany? Um, I think having producers work with educators and work with children through focus groups to create really dynamic, diverse characters, um, and jumping off of Linda's focus group story, making it really cool for boys to relate to girls. And I think we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, if we can get our helpers out with the microphones to people with questions. Hi. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is that when we do have our female representation, there's kind of this initial instinct, I guess, to go right for a strong lead character um, and kind of to have that represent all of women, I guess, because we tend to be considered as not as strong and not as courageous. Um, so where is that line between showing young girls that whatever they like is what they can do. You know, if they want to go fight dragons, that's fine. But if they want to stay home with the kids and do the dishes, that's fine too. Because I really think it's more about letting women be whoever they want to be instead of this line that they have to walk. Like, you know, if, you, if you're writing well, well de a depth of story, then, you know, the characters are going to come out there and, you know, good story writing, good storytelling, good writers. And you'll have like a diverse amount of characters, both in female and male characters as well. You know, they're always like my son is extremely shy and, you know, his attributes are very mm -hmm. different than his cousin who's like plowing into the world, you know, you know, with a different kind of personality. So that's just the world where we are all different and we've all different facets to us. And it's just showing all of those things. I think anyone who uh, takes pitches would know that uh, these days when girl characters are pitched, nine out of 10 are spunky girls <laughs> who leap before they look. And that's mm -hmm. pretty much the description of them. Mm -hmm. Alison, would you say yes? Mm -hmm. uh, so, So we went through a phase where we were like, no spunky girls. We're sick of them. You know, can we just have a girl who's normal? And, you know, this seemed like a very radical, rebellious thing. But, you know, I, I've, I've noticed, too, we always talk about strong female characters. And, you know, not every character is, 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 I mean, strong to some degree can be interpreted in different ways. So sometimes I just think of it as, you know, you're just looking for a show with good characters in the lead. And, you know, good sort of... Um, sort of multi-dimensional, well-developed characters who are not perfect and who have things that they're trying to do that they can't seem to achieve and who have things that they can do that are great and, you know, all of that. You know, just, just whatever goes into making a good character, they should have that. They should be more than just spunky. So. <laughs> I think it also goes into what strong means. Like strong could also mean, you know, like I'm making the decision for myself that I want to stay home, I want to cook, I want to clean, et cetera, you know? And it's also showing girls that are vulnerable is okay and showing them, showing their emotions is okay and getting through them and being resilient through that. So um, thank you all for bearing with our technical difficulties and I hope you enjoyed it. And. Uh, one, one big final shout out to Jellyfish Pictures for sponsoring this event. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.